Well, thank you to the uh, parents and Sunday school teachers who poured into that also. How many of you hope that's not the last special music by that particular ensemble? Uh, what, a, what a precious thing it is to hear children sing. All right, James chapter 3. Join me there again if you would. Again, we're walking through this letter uh, penned by the man James, who as far as we know was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, if you had not noticed it before, you surely have noticed by now that James didn't mince words. Uh, he wrote with a spiritual urgency. And uh, we were talking in Sunday school about the Bible correcting us and how faithful are the wounds of a friend, as it says in the Proverbs, meaning uh, sometimes those things that cut and those things that correct, they hurt. And our natural bent is to throw our guard up and get upset. But many times we miss out on the greatest blessings because we're not teachable. And we understand this in the medical realm. Uh, if you go to a doctor and he says, you have this going on inside, we need to take out this set of tools and we need to cut you open, and we need to remove that, and then we need to sew you back up, and then it's going to take you five or six weeks to recover and another two months to be back to normal. Uh, we will generally, as much as we don't like it, submit to that. And you say, well, it hurts, though. I don't like that news. In fact, I don't even really know that doctor. But I'm convinced it's good for me. This is good for you and I. And so we've been walking through James's letter, and uh, again, there's many ways you could head it, but we're looking at it under the heading of the behavior of biblical faith. There's a lot said in the world today about faith. Somebody says, I'm a person of faith. And much of the time, that means nothing. Yeah. Do you know the issue isn't how much you believe something? The issue is where your faith is. The object of your faith is important. I could trust in this songbook, and I could believe in it all day long, but it's not going to help me. I could stand here and tell you I have great confidence if I flap my arms, I'm going to fly through the roof. Yet you know that's not going to happen. And the problem isn't how much faith I have, the problem is where my faith is. And when faith is in the right place, when it's in the Lord Jesus Christ, when it's in the God of the Bible, and as your mind is cleansed through His Word, that changes your behavior. As someone has rightly said, you don't believe what you don't live. Somebody lays in the highway and says, I believe there's a semi-truck coming. But he lays there. Either he's lost his marbles, he's suicidal, or he doesn't really believe that the semi is coming. And we pick up this book and we say, I believe there's one God. I believe there's one way of salvation. I believe this current world system is marked for destruction. I believe that my treasures are laid up in heaven. I believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I believe only what's done for Christ will last. I believe that His opinion matters more than anything or anybody else. That's going to change my day-to-day -day functionality. And uh, boy, we are at a passage this morning that I dare say is one of the sharpest swords contained in this epistle. Uh, how many of you would say, if you were honest, you line up the different parts of your physical body, those that you can see, 
Uh, how many of you would agree that of all those different parts of your physical body, your tongue has gotten you into more trouble than the rest of them combined? Yeah. Right? Uh, you know, a number of studies have been conducted over the last several decades and of course, they're always limited in their scope, so who knows how perfectly accurate they are. But just as a general idea, even though the results are sometimes disputed, it is said that the average man speaks about 7,000 words per day, and the average woman speaks about 20,000 uh, words per day. So what they say is a difference of 13,000 words. Now, I'm not going to chime in on that. Many have jumped on that and made an attempt to generally mock ladies, and I'm not going to do that. Women are created more communicative. Uh, now, yes, that could get you into trouble, but some of you men could do better to, than to communicate at the level of a caveman also. So I'm going to leave that one for a minute. But let me just say for the sake of illustration, whether you're counting grunts or words, uh, men and women taken together, the average married couple uh, comes up with around 27,000 words a day, which means uh, 200,000 words per week and just shy of 10 million words a year for a married couple. Now, among other things, that's a lot of potential for trouble. Now, consider the recent political season. Now, how many of you, no matter which side you're on, how many of you would characterize this political season as amiable, peaceful, G-rated, and pleasant. Uh, no, you might come up with words like bitter, and hostile, and rage, and slander, and gossip, and mudslinging, etc. Uh, aren't you all glad to stop getting those 8x11 uh, little cardboard things in your mailbox with very bad pictures of every candidate and telling you how horrible they are? Now take all of that nastiness, how much of it was verbal? Most of it was verbal. I think of the conflict you witness in everyday life, whether you're part of it or whether you just see it. Uh, marital conflict, parental conflict, workplace conflict, neighborhood conflict, church conflict. How much of that involves the tongue. I don't know who said that words can never hurt me, but they were a class one idiot. A Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a talebearer, that's a backstabbing gossip, are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. So a knife may stab you on the outside, but words, we all know by experience, stab you on the inside. There are thousands of young people in our country. There's new phenomena, new fields of study, new medical and mental terminology of young people actually developing physical and mental infirmities stemming from what people are saying about them on social media. Now, I know there's right uses of social media, but I don't know that I'd be argued with if I said it's largely a collection of meat-eating buzzards devouring each other. And of course, you can add to that the 
mountains of false teaching, even Christianized false teaching, where the spoken or the written word actually destroys people's lives. Do you know the Bible says, not in the exact terminology, but echoes this, this axiom that wrong words actually land people in eternal hellfire. And then there's a multitude of satanic philosophies of government and of economics and different things that really stem from a rejection of God's absolutes. The kinds that produce millions of deaths on national and global scales. And those largely are spread through the tongue. I wonder if uh, you can recognize the person who spoke the following quotes. As in everything, nature is the best instructor. Now, I wouldn't say nature is the best instructor. I'd say the Word of God is, but nature is definitely an instructor. I know that fewer people are won over by the written word than by the spoken word, and that every great movement on this earth owes its growth to great speakers and not to great writers. Now, historically, there's a lot of truth to that, too. How about this one? The goddess of fate clutched me in her hands and often threatened to smash me, but the will grew stronger as the obstacles increased, and finally the will triumphed. I'll give you a hint. It's the same person who said, tell a big lie loud enough and often enough, and eventually it will be believed. Most of those quotes come from Mein Kampf, the manifesto of Adolf Hitler, which basically was his rantings about what's wrong with the world, penned largely from a prison cell. Now, if you run the estimates of how many, just take the Jews that were slaughtered in World War II, do words matter? If you take the number of words in Mein Kampf, and divide that into the six million Jews that died as a result of those words. For every word of that book, 34 Jews lost their life. Now you spread that out to the deaths in World War II, and you have 472 people lost their life for every word of Mein Kampf. Uh, by the way, that book was banned from printing in Germany in 1945 and just began to be printed again in 2016 and became a bestseller immediately. Well did Solomon write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, death and life are in the power of the tongue. The tongue can expound the glories of the gospel. It can cause men to look upon Christ or it can lead them into demonic blindness for all eternity. The tongue can bind up the brokenhearted, it can cheer the mourner, it can lift up the downcast, or it can actually drive another human being to end their own life. The tongue can heal and change nations, or it can instigate world wars. The tongue can be used to build great godly spiritual movements and institutions. The tongue can also be used to build terrifying Nazi death camps where millions are incinerated. And among our own families, 
churches, friendships. The tongue is a fearful instrument of either construction or destruction. It's no wonder that James takes up this vital topic. Faith controls the tongue. In fact, he's already given us an indication that he was going to get to this topic. Back in chapter 1, you remember he talked about if any man among you seemed to be religious, and then what was the caveat? And bridleth not his tongue. This man's religion is vain or useless. He said in verse 19, same chapter, to be swift to hear and slow to speak. We all know in our anatomy we have one mouth and two ears. There's a good reason for that. As these probably should be used twice as much as this. Now we're going to look at this section under four major headings or four major points. But notice where he begins in verse 1. And here's his point. Because of the danger associated with the use of the tongue, don't be in a hurry to take up a public teaching ministry. That's what's being said in verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And notice that tone, my brethren. And again, he uses that constantly. He is speaking to a largely Jewish audience. But it's a term of endearment. It's a term of compassion and care. And he's saying, my brethren, don't rush to be masters, which is the general term for religious instructors. He's saying, don't be hasty in stepping into the role of teacher or preacher. Now, This isn't to discourage somebody who's equipped and called for those roles. But it is said to cause men to pause before entering. I mean, it's not dealt with here. You can see it in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. But one consistent theme in what's called those pastoral epistles is great carefulness in who is given the platform to teach within the churches. I mean, you see language like uh, lay hands on no man suddenly. It's talking about ordination. Or uh, be not partaker of other men's sins. What, is, what does that mean? In the context, he's saying if, let's say I'm involved in hastily putting somebody in a teaching role, I am partly responsible for the damage they cause. He also says some men's sins are open beforehand and others they follow after. In other words, some people, when there's major issues, you see it immediately, but there's some that are wolves in what kind of clothing? Sheep's clothing. That's why you take time. That's why you test and prove. That's why there's carefulness. Now, it's common, especially among newer converts, uh, to want to be teachers either before they're ready or for the wrong reasons. Uh, I used to work in the prison system with a lot of meth addicts, heroin addicts. And uh, those that seem to genuinely come to Christ... and, and they begin to grow sort of like a rocket ship and they're devouring the Scriptures and they're reading constantly, and they're wanting to share the gospel, 
I always cringed when I heard this. Here they are three, four months in, and here's what they say. I'm going to go back to my old friends, and I'm going to bring them all to Jesus. And I would tell them, wait. I'm glad you have the zeal, but you better get established. Because do you know what I saw happen most of the time? They got sucked back into the satanic vortex and didn't come back. So the zeal's a good thing, but there has to be a test of experience. In fact, uh, many times a new believer will want to be a teacher either before they're ready or for the wrong reasons. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy about pastors. He said, not a novice. That means a new Christian. Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now think about that. He's saying, I don't care how gifted they appear to be. It's a mistake to put them in that position without the test of life experience being examined for a while. It's a mistake. Now, it's a valid question based on this and other passages to ask somebody. Somebody says, I want to teach. Why? Why do you want to teach? I've always been a good talker. I like being in front of people. I have some things I want everyone to hear. I want to be in charge. Those are very bad reasons. Here's another question that could be asked. Have you considered the increased difficulty and accountability that comes with public teaching? In other words, if somebody can enter into that role and there's no sense of dread, there's no carefulness, there's no awareness of the tremendous potential for damage, that person shouldn't be teaching. Now notice what James says here. Why not rush into that position? Well, he gives two basic reasons. One is greater accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. And one is the greater potential for your error spreading in the lives of other people. Notice what he says, Be not many masters, or don't rush to be teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, or the stricter judgment. Greater scrutiny before Jesus Himself. It, it, really, it really is a scary thing to stop and think about. How well did your private life match your public life? How clean was your thought life? Did you live what you taught? And a whole bunch of other questions could be thrown in. So reason one, James says, there's going to be stricter accountability. So don't just rush into this. Think. Reason number two, for in many things, we offend all. And what he's saying is, <clears throat> when you fail in speech with one person, that's bad enough. When you fail in speech in front of a whole lot of people, it's a much bigger problem. And don't take it lightly. Do you know which preachers in the world fail with their tongues? The ones that open their mouth. And I mean that. 
Public speaking multiplies the opportunities to fail. I mean, I was sitting, I was, I was actually just I was thinking on this, trying to apply it to myself. How many different ways there are to err standing up here? There's just errors of speech. There's mispronounced words, transposing names, misquoting things, getting verses wrong, or phrasing things wrongly. Even if you understand it correctly, it can come out wrongly. There's errors of content. In other words, imperfect doctrinal understanding that you may not realize until later on until you've taught that for a while incorrectly. There's errors of tone. You know, you can say a right thing with a very wrong tone, can't you? How about errors of emphasis? Do you know that I could actually stand up here week after week and teach Bible passages accurately and still lead you into error? Do you know how? Because of emphasis. I can just selectively leave out certain passages of the whole counsel of God. But by the way, this is what New Evangelicalism has done. Someone made the statement years ago, the problem isn't what they're teaching, the problem is what they won't teach. And now that's gotten worse. But it started off with, we will not teach the so-called negative sections. We won't, we won't teach the warning passages. We're not going to warn people specifically to stay away from certain things. We're just going to stick to the positive with Pollyanna. But the problem is, it, it became a very one-sided movement, even though what was being taught was generally accurate because the emphasis was wrong. It wasn't balanced. Now again, I'm not saying this to discourage teachers. I, I seriously hope that God raises up many here. Teachers and preachers and Sunday school teachers and people to walk with God and be able to verbally instruct from His Word. I hope God multiplies the number. But that has to be tempered with sober-mindedness at the danger of wagging our tongue before an audience. Alright, now point number two. This comes up in the middle of verse two. This is huge. A Christian's use of the tongue is one of the best indicators of how mature they really are in Christ. Look at the middle of verse 2. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man or complete man, and able also to bridle the whole body. James says, you see a believer who's able to bridle the tongue. That is a mature Christian. Right there. Now, think about that further. By inference, he's saying, bar none, the tongue is the hardest part of your physical body to control. And if you can control that, you can very likely control the rest. Now, let me give a side note here. I'm not including the mind. We'll get to that. The mind, I would say, is the immaterial you, and we'll get to that. But I'm talking about the physical, corporeal body. 
If you can control the tongue, the rest of it will likely fall in line. And your experience tells you this. What was harder for you to control this week, your fists or your tongue? Your feet or your tongue? Your eyes or your tongue? Your ears or your tongue? You would probably say this most of the time. Now let me point this out. I think it's important to park for a minute. There's two very wrong conclusions that a person may come to from that verse with just a surface reading. You see, word meanings and context and, and other passages to balance this uh, brought in are very, very important. Now let me say, what, what kind of wrong conclusion can someone come to with that statement of any man offend not in word the same as a perfect man or a complete man? Well, here's two wrong conclusions. Wrong conclusion number one, since we've just been talking about teachers, wrong conclusion number one is a preacher who is actually mature in Christ will never offend anybody. Isn't that what that says? <laughs> but by the way, that, that is a common theme today. Well, first of all, the word offend actually means it's not talking about so much the reaction of the hearer as the action of the speaker. Uh, the word offend means to stumble or sin with the mouth. It's talking about sinful speech. Okay, speech that is against the character of God. Uh, secondly, the entirety of the Bible says just the opposite. In fact, if a preacher never offends people, he probably isn't even a real preacher. I mean, where did that start? How well did Cain like Brother Abel sermonizing? Not much. James's letter. Uh, what was just read in your hearing a few moments ago as we go forward in this passage, I would classify as somewhat offensive to my natural self. If you don't believe me, we'll get to it more in depth. Did Jesus ever offend anybody? Not sinfully. Uh, did Paul ever offend anybody? Did John the Baptist offend anybody? Did Jeremiah? Did Elijah? Did Elisha? Right? And the list could keep going. How about Stephen? I find it amazing in Acts 7. Uh, here's this first martyr of the Christian church age. And it actually says in the text, they looked at his face and they saw it as the face of an angel. This man is sitting here and he had this heavenly glow of supernatural peace on his face. And it says in the text that he was full of the Holy Ghost. This man was under complete control of the Holy Spirit of God. His disposition was heavenly and angelic. And that mob gnashed their teeth like rabid animals and bashed his brains out with rocks. Why? Because the truth hurt. That's why. So, right preaching does not sinfully offend. 
But right preaching often offends the sinful. But what's wrong conclusion number two from that? If any man offend not in word, he's a complete man. Here's what wrong conclusion number two is. If I just don't talk, I won't sin, and I'm mature. What's the carnal mind? Let's say you're at odds with somebody. You're having some sort of argument. And uh, you read that passage and you say, I have an idea. Um, I have an idea. I'm just going to not talk. I'm going to give them the silent treatment. And they're going to see how mature I am. And so it's a two-for-one special, right? I'll just shut them out. What's that pounding noise? <laughs> All right. Yeah, I don't think that's going to stop. So we'll just, can you guys hear me okay back there? Okay, good. We'll press on. Amen? Um, <clears throat> so someone may look at that and say, well, I'll just, I'll just not talk and that'll fix it, right? Is James, is James advocating not speaking at all? Well, not hardly. Uh, he himself is a preacher. Now, think about this. What does it mean to bridle something here? What, what does that mean? He said back in chapter 1, a man has to bridle his tongue to prove the reality of his faith. And he says here, if you can control the tongue, you bridle the whole body. So by inference, he's saying, a spiritual person bridles the tongue. But that word bridle, it means to rein in or to keep in check or to guide. Think, when you bridle a horse, do you keep the horse from functioning? No, you bridle that horse uh, so you can keep it from the wrong direction and you can channel it in the right direction. It's the same with the tongue. Bridle doesn't mean stop using. It means put spirit controls on it so that it stops the wrong and does the right. Same with the tongue all through the New Testament. If you survey the New Testament in Proverbs, there's many areas of speech you're told not to do. Slander, gossip, backbiting, etc. But there's also a great many positive commands. Words like admonish, rebuke, exhort, edify, preach the gospel. You cannot carry out those commands with the silent treatment. Those are positive words, verbal uh, speech that has to happen that amount to bridling the tongue in the correct direction. Remember, Solomon didn't just say death is in the power of the tongue. He said death and life are in the power of the tongue. In Ephesians 5, in fact, turn to Psalm 39. Keep your finger in James. Turn to Psalm 39. And as you're turning there, I'll mention Ephesians Psalm chapter 39, and and this this passage in Psalms, I kind of have to smile because I know the experience. But let me mention before we get there, in Ephesians 5, when you look at the command to be filled with the Spirit, the outflowing evidence of Spirit filling, what is it? Immediately, it's the right things that the tongue is now used for. The filling of the Spirit immediately. The outflow of that is speaking to yourselves or among yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the the being filled with the Spirit is not manifested by muteness. It's manifested by the right kind of speech. Now, Psalm 39. Any of you ever identify with this one? I have. 
Psalm 39, here's David writing about his experience. Verse 1, I said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my mouth. I will keep my mouth with the bridle while the wicked is before me. So David got sick of his idle chatter. And he got sick of the fact that he felt like all he did was sin with his tongue, especially before the loss. So he said, okay, I've got to control this. I've got to do something about it. So what does he do? Verse 2, I was dumb or mute with silence. I held my peace. What's the next phrase? Even from good. And then what happened? My sorrow was stirred. <laughs> so he kept his yap shut for a while. He tried the mute thing. And then he realized, wait a minute, there's a lot of right things I'm supposed to say, and now I'm not saying those. And now my spirit stirred within me to not just not say the bad, but to say the good. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue. Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. So David found, maybe just like some of you have found, that muteness doesn't cut it either. I've often joked about here in Montana, duct tape fixes everything. Why not the tongue? How about if we just throw some, I mean, they make a lot of colors. It could be a fashion statement, especially during the COVID age of mass. We can all just tape our lips shut and we'll have a sinless group within a week, won't we? Well, it doesn't shut this off, number one, but there's also a lot of good speech that you can't take part in either. Okay, so James is not saying don't talk. He's saying, though, a major evidence of maturity is reigning in the tongue. You can go back to James, by the way. A major evidence of maturity is reigning in the tongue to its intended and God-honoring purposes, avoiding the wrong kind of speech and embracing the right kind of speech, because both are necessary. Again, we were talking in Sunday school about that biblical pattern of doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And reproof and correction are usually couplets together. The Lord's saying, don't do this, but do this. Replace it with the right. It's not just don't speak wrongly. It's do speak rightly. Uh, now, James is going to give some uh, everyday object lessons of something very small that controls something much larger. And, and what he does is take the two fastest modes of transportation available in that day. If you wanted to uh, get somewhere else, uh, you wanted to get there quickly, you either went by means of horse or you went by means of a sailing ship. Those are your options. Uh, we might also imagine illustrations of uh, holding the steering wheel of an SUV or uh, holding the yoke of a jumbo jet. But he says in verse 3, Behold, look, now notice this. You know, the average horse, I'm told, weighs about 1,400 pounds, and generally that's solid muscle. And he can run uh, up to 50 miles an hour. And on his back sits a rider who maybe weighs a buck 80 and can run 15 to 20 miles per hour when he's scared to death and full of adrenaline. Now the horse outweighs him by sevenfold, and the horse can outrun, outstomp, outbite, and outmaneuver him in every single category. But with this little piece of metal in the back of his mouth, 
and a couple of leather straps, that rider can lead the entirety of that horse at will. He can lead him to the stable. He can make him jump hurdles. He can braid his mane and make him prance around all pretty. And he can lead that horse into battle. Or how about a sailing ship? I've read that uh, in the first century, the larger vessels were 100 to 150 feet long. So he says, well, what about the ship? It's driven of fierce winds. It's out in the storms. It's, it's, it's very large. But it's controlled by this helm, this rudder that's only a few feet in length. And wherever the pilot of that ship or the captain wants to turn it, that ship is going to go. So you have this very small part that's controlling the mass of the entire thing. And in verse 5, even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. The average adult male in America, in case you're wondering, weighs in at 198 pounds. And the average tongue of that same adult male weighs 2.4 ounces. So the average male is controlled by part of his body that weighs seven one-hundredths of a percent of his total body weight. And notice that 2.4 ounce chunk of flesh boasteth great things. You know, there's really an irony there because the tongue can't even carry out what it boasts about. The rest of the body has to scramble to cover for the tongue. Let's say the tongue insults a very large, angry man. The tongue ain't going to defend you now. You better put up your dukes. The tongue gets the body into a whole lot of trouble and really can't do much about it when he causes it. It really it reminds me of the description of the Antichrist. It says here that the tongue boasteth great things. If you look at two major descriptions from Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, listen how the Antichrist, that coming man of sin, that world satanic ruler, in Daniel 7, he's described as the little horn, and he says, it says he has the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Revelation 13, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And so among other things, the Antichrist is going to be one Satan-filled sack of hot wind and a colossal big mouth. That's what he's going to be. Oh, he says, behold again, look, look, watch this. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. Now that word matter, the only Greek, uh, the only time that Greek word is used in the New Testament is here. He seems to be referring to it. Picture a huge forest. And he's saying, look how big of a fire the tiniest little spark can start. Are you familiar with the devastating fire? that burned in the central United States on the night of October 8, 1871? You might say, that's, that's the great Chicago fire. Well, you're right, but that's not the fire that I'm talking about. 
There was actually a much worse one, but because of the fame in Chicago, you probably never heard of the other. It was called the Great Peshtigo Fire over in Wisconsin, and it's been relatively forgotten. But listen to these numbers. In the first two hours, a swath of forest 10 miles wide by 40 miles long went up in smoke, obliterated two entire towns, and killed an estimated 1,700 people. It's interesting, uh, nowadays the fires in California, they're horrible, historically horrible. But I don't buy the rhetoric that says everything that's happening hasn't happened before. You know, you see footage of fire tornadoes and all that, they're terrifying. But do you know, historically, for the last hundred years, those have been thrown aside, those kind of records, as so much exaggeration. But listen to this description. Remember, this is 1871. Here's what an onlooker described it as. A wall of flame, a mile high, five miles wide, traveling 90 to 100 miles per hour, hotter than a crematorium, and actually turned sand into glass. Think about that. By the time it was over, it had destroyed 12 towns and 1.5 million acres. Now, how did it start, you may wonder? Oh, you can't blame this one on lightning. There were a few very small land-clearing brush fires. Oh, we know it's dry, but we got this. And they blew out of control and created a historic firestorm. And one of the towns it ran over didn't even have seconds to prepare. In fact, if you like to read, there was a story by Paul Harvey. You remember the rest of the story? It was called The Night Sin City Died. And it was about the Peshtigo fire on the same night as the Chicago fire. And of course, he tells it like only uh, Paul Harvey could. But I think when we see the smoky bear signs, we should think of this. Only you can prevent forest fires. All right, number three, verses six to eight. Human effort alone can never tame the tongue. Now look at verse 6, and, and I, I'm serious. I cannot imagine a more brutal and scathing description. And we're not going to cover it super in-depth. We're just going to touch on the major descriptive elements. But I want you to remember that when he says our and uses that personal pronoun about our tongue, he's talking to Christian people. He's talking to you and me. He says, the tongue is a fire. In other words, the possibilities of destruction are almost infinite. You ever take out a match and just look at it and think, given the right circumstances, how much destruction could this do? I mean, theoretically, given the right circumstances, a match could burn down an entire continent. 
with only the oceans eventually stopping the blaze. I mean, we tell children, don't play with that match. But I wonder if we adults are careless with this one. He says, it's a world of iniquity. He uses a Greek word, cosmos, which is curious. He's describing vastness. You know, we'll talk about something being a world unto itself or a whole new world of whatever. He's describing the vastness that the tongue is like a universe of evil unto itself. And nobody has ever explored how deep and bad it really is. Now, how about the tongue? Look what it does to your whole body. He said, so is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body. What an amazing statement. Through wrong use of the tongue, a person can actually distort their entire personality. I mean, haven't you've met people that they have language that could shock a pirate? They lose all sense of it. It so warps their perception of things that they, they begin to not even see it anymore. Lying, slandering, blaspheming, complaining actually alter your inner man and damage your soul. I ran across this quote from one commentator. I'll read you this paragraph because I thought this was so true. He says, The fault finder injures himself. The mudslinger cannot engage in his favorite pastime without getting some of the mud that he slings both upon his hands and upon his heart. How often have we come away from such an experience with a sense of defilement? Yet that was not our intention at all. We were vainly hoping that by slinging mud upon others, we might enhance someone's estimate of our own cleanliness. We were foolish enough to believe that we could build ourselves up by tearing another down. We were blind enough to imagine that by putting a stick of dynamite under the house of our neighbor, we could strengthen the foundation of our own. But that is never the case. In our efforts to injure others, we may succeed, but we always inflict the deeper injury upon ourselves. And then James says, it setteth on fire the course of nature, or the wheel of nature, literally. He's speaking of the entire course of human activity. Not only does the tongue defile an individual person, but it taints all of their activity. It's like a chain reaction of fiery explosions. And you can catalog your own life experiences, how many things you've seen or done that were tainted by tongues. How about this description? And it is set on fire of hell. Now, in case you're wondering, that word hell is the Greek word Gehenna, which is used 12 times in the New Testament. And all of the others, you know who spoke them? 
All of the others are spoken by Jesus himself, warning about a literal, fiery, eternal hell. This is the only exception to that usage. And so he takes the word that Jesus repeatedly preached as eternal, fiery hell, and he said, your tongue is set on that same fire. He's saying the tongue is hellish. It actually assists in bringing men to damnation. Think of something. This was a piercing thought as I examined myself. Think of something viewed as minor. Let's say here you are, you're complaining about circumstances to a lost person. What's really happening? You are actually teaching a lesson in satanic theology that God is not who he says he is and actually helping lead that person away from God and to the lake of fire. And it's almost like James is amazed at the irony here. He says every kind of beast and birds and serpent is tamed and and things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. How many terrifying beasts from the animal kingdom have been tamed? You know, where I, where I grew up, and Kodiak Brown Bear was the king of the beasts up there. Big, big animal. I've seen lots of them. Don't know that I like seeing them that much. There's been multiple people Bart the bear was real big when I was growing up. Trained Kodiak brown bear. And now there's a guy in Canada that Joe Martin has filmed his last video there. And this guy, he trains, he, he, in fact, he has a, brown, a Kodiak brown bear and a polar bear. And here he is swimming in the pool with it, feeding it by hand. He actually sticks his head in the bear, this Kodiak brown bear's mouth, and it gnaws on his skull just gently, not enough to break the skin. One wrong snap, and he would crush the guy's head. I know thanks, I don't want my head in that guy's mouth. How about lions and tigers? And not just the creepy guys in the spandex in Las Vegas. Lots of people have tamed those. Terrifying animal. Poisonous serpents. Snake charmers. How about a killer whale? You know, killer whales look really friendly, don't they? They look like a nice animal. They're not a nice animal. You ever see those teeth? They're called killer whale for a reason. They could bite you in half in one snap, easily. But here's the trainer, swimming along with it. And that list could go on and on. So James is saying, a man can actually gain the mastery over a 1,500-pound savage killer with very large fangs and claws to the point where he sticks his head inside the thing's mouth. But he says the tongue can no man tame. You can tame a killer whale, but you can't tame the tongue. Look how he further describes it. It is an unruly evil. What does unruly mean? Unrestrainably and untamably bad. There's a few animals out there, you'd say they're not tameable. James is saying, put your tongue on that list. And he says it's full, 
filled to the brim with death-dealing poison. And let me remind you again, he's talking to believers. Now, we're going to jump ahead to the last point quickly, and we're going to come back to to verse 8 and finish. But fourthly, the Lord wants you and I to have one tongue that is consistently putting forth that which is pleasing to Him. Look at the illustration given. Verse 9. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father. And therewith, curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? I mean, a man says, praise God, hallelujah, brother. I'd like to sing holy, holy, holy on Sunday and curses it up the rest of the week and calls down evil upon his fellow men. Who at least by being made in the image of God deserves some measure of dignity, if nothing else. And James is saying, in other words, there's this disconnect of the tongue between the professed religious life and regular life. That a defiled mouth can't properly praise Jehovah and a pure mouth refuses to allow itself to be defiled. I mean, how many times would it take, let's say uh, you stop, I like, you know, you know, get the water up on McDonald Pass, any of you ever do that? And uh, there's that, just the water spring coming out, good water. But let's say you stop by there and you fill up your jug. And it's this cool, wonderful, heavenly water comes out. The next time you go, it's lukewarm. Boy, that's different. And then the next time you go, it's full of sulfur. Smells like rotten eggs. And then you go again, the water's good. Next trip, it's motor oil. Then it's Pepsi. Then it's antifreeze. And then it's good water again. Now, wouldn't you take your visiting family and say, now, if you want some good water, I vote you go up on McDonald's. I wouldn't. (laughs) I'd send them to my own faucet. Why? Because you can't trust what's going to come out of that fountain. It may be good some of the time, but you don't trust it enough. When you open your mouth, faucet turns on. Do the people around you always get the same thing? Or do they live in fear of what's going to come out next? Now let's wrap this all together and we'll be done. The analogies of the fountain and the fig tree given are very fitting because the fountain is only as good as its source and the fig tree is only as good as its root. Now let's go back to verse 8 to finish. Now think about that statement. James says, but the tongue can no man 
tame. Is James saying it's, it's hopeless? Don't even try, forget it, it can't be done in this life. No. He's not saying that. But what he's doing is discouraging human effort by itself. He's saying that you and human energy can not tame the tongue. It can't be bridled through self-help, through positive thinking, through that roll of duct tape or anything else. It has to be done through control by the Holy Spirit. And we don't have time to expound on that, but other passages have to fill in that for us. That's why we have to have the entirety of the Scriptures. But I want to point out Luke, 40, Luke 6.45, which is an incredibly important principle. The Lord says there as He's preaching, "...a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil." For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. Now I talked about your physical body. Let's talk about the immaterial. The tongue does not act as an independent agent, and it cannot. The tongue is the overflow valve of what is taking place in the heart and mind. In other words, a tongue problem is a heart problem without exception. If your tongue is producing both sweet water and bitter, it's because your heart and mind are divided somewhere in their allegiance to Christ. And again, I would point you back, we're not going to go there, but Ephesians 5, being filled with the Spirit, being under His subjection, uh, being resigned to the will of God as much as I know, and having dealt with sin as much as I know, and being under the control of the Spirit of God is the only way that this can really be bridled to not just stop speaking the wrong, but to be a fountain of what is right. Now, I want to go back to the words of Solomon one more time. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We've talked a lot about the death part, because James does. But what about the life? Your tongue is one of the members of your body that's not to be yielded as a servant of sin, Romans 6. Your tongue is part of the present your bodies a living sacrifice in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Your tongue can be an instrument of godliness, of light and life, of edification, of truth, of encouragement, of holiness. When? You are in close fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and in no other capacity. So who has control of that 2.4 ounce chunk of flesh inside your mouth? Is it an instrument of construction 
or an instrument of destruction. Let me also ask this before I'm done. Do you know this morning your sins are forgiven? Because you can know that. And you know something? It's not because I said. And it's not because a church said. It's not because any person said. It's because the eternal Word of God says. Well, it points out our real condition apart from Christ. You may not even be aware of it, but if you've never trusted Him for salvation, you're a rebel and an enemy of God, and you are heading for eternal destruction in the lake of fire. You say, I don't see it. There's a lot of things you don't see. Do you see the angelic and demonic realm? No. Do you see the day of your death approaching? No. We don't see those things. But God tells us they're coming. But there's good news. You can't control your tongue. And for you, if that's you, you'll never be able to control it until you get right with God. But the door of salvation is open. Are you willing to see yourself as God sees you? You have to be. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. You press on and say, I'll fix myself. I'll take care of myself. I'm good. Do you know the Lord will let you stand before Him and try to prove how good you are? And He will dump out your whole life before Him like a bucket of ashes, and He'll say, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. I never knew you. You have one hope to be right with God, and that is God has to give you His own righteousness. Jesus died on that cross and rose again to pay the penalty for your sin. And He holds His hand out to you and says, Come, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, and and we thank You for the bluntness of James. Lord, it really, it, 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 it hurts what He said about our tongues. But yet, we have to acknowledge Your Word is true. And if we're honest with ourselves, we agree with His assessment. Oh, I pray You'd help us to sift ourselves and help us, Lord, if, if anybody here looks at this, uh, the preacher included, and sees there's a lack, a problem in the usage of the tongue, I pray You'd let that knowledge drive us to examine where we're not subjected to examine what sin we're holding on to, to examine why we're not conduits of divine life, but filth instead. Help us to be a submitted people and help us to be lights in this world, including the use of our tongue. Father, I pray for those that are sitting here. You know every soul and I don't, but if there's somebody sitting here who is truly dead in their sins and heading for eternal destruction, I pray that your word would follow them out the door. I pray, Lord, that they would think about judgment and think about an eternal fiery hell and think about their own sin. And I pray you'd give them eyes to see how utterly depraved and rebellious they've been. But I also pray, Lord, you'd show them the glories of Christ who's willing to save now. Thank you for the food we get to eat afterwards. I pray you'd bless this meal and bless the time of fellowship. Help us to admonish and encourage and edify and build each other as we eat together. In Jesus' name, amen.